Alrighty, if you will at this time, please open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, and Sean was passing out the sermon notes earlier. If you don't have them, I don't know where Sean took them, or does anybody need them? Just raise your hand and Sean will get them to you, but they're just blank notes tonight. It's no fill in the blank. Kind of a break, but kind of not. <laughs> Genesis chapter 3, if you will. Let me get my... Tonight, obviously, we are focusing on having a Good Friday service. We hold this service to remember the death of Jesus Christ, and it's very appropriate that we'll have a communion service tied into the message. You'll note, as I'm sure you're aware if you've read your Bibles, that the expression Good Friday is not in the Bible. Good Friday is a term that Christians through the years have developed with the thought that first that Christ was crucified on a Friday. We get that from passages tied to the Gospels that talk about the fact that it was the day of preparation, which would have been typically the day before the Sabbath for the Jewish people, which the Sabbath is a Saturday, and since the day of preparation, Christ was crucified on it, it would have led us to believe that it was a Friday in which he was crucified. We call the expression good because of the results. It is a good Friday, not for Jesus in the sense that um, something good happened to him. Obviously, it was good in the sense he was faithful to the Father, he was faithful to the plan, but it was good for us because it's the death of Jesus Christ that pays the penalty for our sin. And as I think more and more about presenting the gospel to people, telling people about the good news of Jesus Christ, I am more and more just aware of how a true believer responds to the awareness that what Christ did on the cross was all that we needed, all that the believer needed. There's credit to Christ that he did it all. Christ paid it all, as the scriptures say. Well, tonight, we're aware that believers and non-believers across the globe are celebrating this holiday. But it's important for us to focus on what really happened, to understand what really happened on the day that Christ was crucified, and to think about what he went through for us so that we will be people that appreciate him and the love, loving act that he gave to us, okay, of giving it all. So what we're going to talk about is the pain that he went through. As we look through the various scriptures that talk about what Jesus would do for us on the cross. And interestingly enough, the very first one is in Genesis chapter 3, right at the heart of the fall of man. If you look at Genesis chapter 3, as God is talking to the serpent in Genesis 3 verse 14, that he says to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And then he says this in verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is called the first giving of the gospel. 
The serpent was representative of Satan. Later on in the book of Romans, this passage will be, in a sense, applied to Satan. It'll become very clear that God was talking through the snake at that time to what was understood by us through the book of Revelation, even that Satan was operating through the serpent. And as verse 15 comes to play out, he says, I'm going to put enmity, hatred between you and the woman and her, your seed and her seed. Well, as we've said before in our study of this, a woman doesn't have seed in the birth process. But it is a reference to the um, ch- children that she has. And then ultimately, we understand the ultimate seed, which the book of Galatians and other passages will refer to, to. We understand this to be a reference to Jesus. How pain comes into this is where you see at the end, it says, He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall, he shall bruise you on the head. Meaning, as we understand it, the Messiah will crush the serpent, will destroy and kill Satan. Obviously, we wish that would happen now fully, but we understand the last line, you shall bruise him on the heel, is where Satan does get some inroad into Jesus, some pain into the Messiah, the one he, the deliverer, that is foreshadowed here in Genesis 3.15. And so right from the very beginning, God has has a plan. And interestingly enough, pain is a part of it. And as we've said, no pain, no gain. And God has wanted us to understand right from the beginning, the wages of sin is death. The penalty for sin is not good works, more effort, how much money you're going to give, but it's death. And Jesus will be our substitute. He will be bruised for us. Well, continue on as God continues to give us more pictures of this coming pain. Turn to Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is maybe 2,000 or um, no, maybe 3,500 to 4,000 years later. Psalm 22 is, <coughs> excuse me, one of the most famous psalms because we can clearly see it being personified through Jesus while he's on the cross. Jesus will quote the very first verse, and there's some question as to, was Jesus going to go on to give the entire 22nd Psalm, but he didn't have the energy to. But as we read through this, we realize that there are aspects that very clearly were fulfilled. Not every aspect of this Psalm was fulfilled in the sense of Jesus being on the cross, but I'm going to read passages or excerpts from this passage that will show you how it was fulfilled. And here we get some understanding of the pain that Jesus went through for us. Verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I have no rest. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. Jesus felt abandoned. Even the video referenced, abandon. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So incredible pain, an emotional pain. Go down to verse 10. Upon you, or thee, I was cast from birth. You've been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there's none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They opened wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. 
My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. And, you know, through the process of crucifixion, they say the bones would literally fall out of place. And we know ultimately, and I'll reemphasize this again, is that Jesus doesn't die by normal crucifixion uh, processes. Jesus dies of a burst heart. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you do lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers have encompassed me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look at me. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Incredible the intense pain that Jesus went through. Ironic how David was used to write a psalm that would ultimately be fulfilled by Christ while he's on the cross. Now turn to Isaiah chapter 52 where we get perhaps one of the most intense passages on the pain that Jesus went through, what Jesus experienced. As we go to about the year, maybe 620 B.C., four or five hundred years later from when David spoke, Isaiah 52 considered the gospel in the Old Testament. Someone says, where is that gospel in the Old Testament? You would take them to Isaiah 52 through Isaiah 53. And we pick up in verse 13 of Isaiah 52. As Isaiah is giving promise to the people of Israel, as they are been condemned, they're under chastisement for their sin, All is not lost. God is going to be faithful to the covenant he's made to Abraham. He will bring a redeemer. And he says this in verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many people were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man in his form, more than the sons of men. And it's important that you star verse 14, that you remember as we talk about the beatings and what Jesus went through, the scourging, that the hatred that mankind has for God, as we watch it even sometimes today in our, our culture, our media, and we say, how could people hate Christians so much? Well, they, hated, they hate God. They love their sin. The Apostle Paul will say in the book of Colossians, there was so much hatred in essence for Jesus that they started pouring it out on me. Please, let's never forget When they went after Jesus, they went after him. And I believe the scriptures. His appearance was marred. So incredible. So devastating. I think we would be appalled if we really saw a picture of what Jesus looked like after his beating. Verse 15, thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Verse 1 of chapter 53. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. I often think with that passage how the world still looks at the maybe the six foot five, all handsome, I don't know, blonde hair, hunk of a guy. That's the king. And maybe even when we put pictures of Jesus up and we think of Jesus, we think of Jesus as this big, strong shepherd. But I always try to remember this verse, that there was nothing in, in us that we would look at Jesus and say, hey, that guy ought to be king. 
He had no form, nothing that was attractive from the world's perspective. Verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. His death and all that he went through. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. You know, it wasn't that Jesus didn't talk when Pilate asked questions or maybe Herod would have asked a question. I just know, or when the Pharisees and the Sadducees questioned him, it was that when Jesus recognized that they were not going to treat him fairly, it wasn't going to be a fair trial, it wasn't going to be an uh, inquiry of integrity, if you put it that way. Finally, Jesus shut it down. I'm not going to argue. I'm not going to proclaim um, a fight verbally with you because you're just not fair. And obviously, he takes that to the cross because the, the thieves on the cross will be um, taken back by him and one, as we know, will become a believer because they'll see Jesus on the cross and he's not like other people that have been crucified, screaming, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, get me down. Verse eight. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. And as we know, that was fulfilled as a rich man. Joseph of Arimathea will put Jesus in his tomb. A rich man, Jesus gets his tomb. Verse 10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And there's the great perplexity that the Jews should have wondered. Here, they were all told he, he was killed for them, all of them. And yet, here now, he will see his offspring. His days will be proclaimed. It should have been perplexing. They should have wondered and thought there's some type of special event going on, which we now know is the resurrection. Well, as the verse continues, it says, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Verse 11, and as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. You know, one of the things that's so hard at times to deal with is the aspect of humility. It's, uh, it's being falsely accused. You know, I hate to be falsely accused. I hate to be someone that is maligned and thought of, hey, you know, this guy did this or that guy did that, and someone was pointing a finger at me, you know? And, and just think about it. Jesus went from his baptism to his death, 
okay, and was someone that was someone that was always identifying himself with humanity at the lowliest of points and then took it to the lowest of lows to die in a criminal setting where people look and say, here's this guy, he's on a cross, he's no good. But he was doing that for us to pay our penalty. Again, the emotional as well as the physical pain and the spiritual dynamic of taking the sins of the world for us, as it says, that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. We'll turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke. As we turn now to the New Testament, we see more of what Jesus was going through. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 22, we come to the night of his, his betrayal. <coughs> and... Last night we were coming home, we had the family in the car, it was about 10 o'clock at night, and I mentioned to the kids, I said, you know, I don't know where exactly in the, in the entire night of how they've had the Passover dinner, the Passover dinner probably would have started around 6 or 7 o'clock on a Wednesday night, they would have finished, wrapped up, maybe anywhere from 10 to 12 o'clock, they would have gone over, Jesus and his disciples would have gone over to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus at this point has been up we would perceive all day. The last time he has slept was Wednesday night. He knows what's coming. As we read, look at Luke chapter 22, verse 39. And he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at that place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. What that must have been like. Think about that. And why God had to send an angel. Think about what he was facing. Because look at the next verse. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow and said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. I found this series of writings on the death of Jesus Christ and the whole process. And this author wrote this from Dallas Seminary. He said, The physical passion of Christ began in Gethsemane. Of the many aspects of his initial suffering, the one which is of particular physiological interest is the bloody sweat. Interestingly enough, the physician, St. Luke, is the only evangelist, the only writer to mention this occurrence. And he says, in being in agony, he prayed the longer and his sweat became as drops of blood trickling down upon the ground. Every attempt imaginable has been used by modern scholars to explain away the phenomenon of bloody sweat, apparently under the mistaken impression that it simply doesn't occur. But a great deal of effort could be saved by consulting the medical literature. Though very rare, the phenomenon of hematidrosis, or bloody sweat, is well documented. Under great emotional stress, tiny tiny capillaries in the sweat glands can break, thus mixing blood with sweat. This process alone could have produced marked weakness and possible shock in Jesus alone at this point. Just right there. Well, let's move on and let's look at now as 
Jesus has been arrested. He's gone through the trial with the Jews and now with the, um, and then he'll go on with the Romans. So turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew and let's look at what the Jews did to him. Remember, there's a Jewish phase and that there is a Greek or Roman phase. As Jesus goes through the two, the two parts, each one takes their shot at him. Matthew chapter 26, verse 65. Matthew 26, <coughs> verse 65. It says, Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He is blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, He deserves death. And then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists. Then others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who was the one who hit you? And like so many aspects of what Jesus underwent, very short, very to the point, he got hit. And, you know, the pounding that he had to endure right then and there. You know, an adult hitting another adult could be deadly in and of itself. Jesus will take multiple blows throughout this morning. Jump down to verse 26 of chapter 27. Go to the next chapter. We're just jumping through as Jesus is now going to be taken before the Romans. And it says this in verse 26. It's, after they've released Bar- Bar- Barabbas, it says, Then he released Barabbas, but having, after having Jesus, Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Then the soldiers and the governor took Jesus in the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. And they mocked him and they took the scarlet robe of him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed in the service to bear his cross. Listen to what this writer wrote. He goes, In the early morning, battered and bruised, dehydrated, and worn out from a sleepless night, Jesus was taken across to Jerusalem, to the praetorium of the fortress Antonia, the seat of government of the procurator of Judea, Pontius Pilate. We are familiar with Pontius' actions in attempting to shift responsibility to Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch of of Judea. Jesus apparently suffered no physical treatment at the hands of Herod and was returned to Pilate. It was then in response to the outcry of the mob that Pilate ordered Barabbas released and condemned Jesus to scourging and crucifixion. Preparation for Jesus' scourgings were carried out at Caesar's orders. The prisoner was stripped of his clothing and his hands tied to a post above his head. The Roman legionnaire stepped forward with a flagrum or flagellum in his hand. This was a short whip consisting of several heavy leather thongs with two small bands of lead attached near the ends of each. The heavy whip was brought down with full force again and again across Jesus' shoulders, back and legs. At first, the weighted thongs cut through the skin only. Then as the blows continued, they cut deeper into the subcutaneous tissues, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin, and finally spurting arterial bleeding from the vessels and the underlying muscles. 
The small balls of lead first produced large deep bruises that were broken open by subsequent blows. Finally, the skin of the back was hanging in long ribbons, and the entire area was an unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. When it was determined by the centurion charge that the prisoner was near death, the beating was finally stopped because they wanted to take him to be crucified. The author again goes on. Let's talk about the mockery. The half-fainting Jesus was then untied and allowed to slump at the stone pavement, wet with his own blood. The Roman soldiers saw a great joke in this provincial Jew claiming to be a king. They threw a robe across his shoulders and placed a stick in his hand for a scepter. They still needed a crown to make their travesty complete. Small, flexible branches covered with long thorns, commonly used for kindly fires in the charcoal braziers of the courtyard, were, were put into the shape of a crude crown. The crown was then pressed into his skull, his scalp, and again there was a copious bleeding as the thorns pierced the very vascular tissue. After mocking him and striking him across the face, the soldiers took the stick from his hand and struck him across the head, driving the thorns deeper into his scalp. You never think of that, do you? When they were hitting him on the head. Finally, they tired of their sadistic sport and they tore the rope from his back. The rope had already became adherent to the clots of blood and serum in the, and serum in the wounds and its removal, just as the careless removal of a surgical bandage had to cause excruciating pain. The wounds again began to bleed. In deference to Jewish customs, the Romans apparently returned his garments. The heavy crossbeam was then tied across his shoulders. The procession of the condemned Christ, two thieves in the execution detail, the Roman soldiers headed by a centurion began its slow journey to the route which they, we know today as the Via Dolorosa. In spite of Jesus' efforts to walk erect, the weight of the heavy wooden beam, together with the shock produced by the incredible loss of blood, was too much. He stumbled and fell. The rough wound of the beam gouged into the lacerated skins and the muscles and soldiers. He tried to rise, but human, muscle, but human muscles had been pushed beyond their endurance. The centurion, anxious to proceed with the crucifixion, selected a stalwart North African onlooker, Simon of Cyrene, to carry the cross. Jesus followed, still bleeding and sweating, the cold, clammy sweat of shock. The 650-yard journey from the Fortress Antonia to, uh, to Golgotha was finally completed. And I think about that, 650 yards. 650 yards. Over six and a half football fields. The prisoner was again stripped of his clothing except for a loincloth, which was allowed Jesus, and the crucifixion began. Jesus was offered wine mixed with myrrh, a mild and a um, pain reliever, but he refused it. Simon was ordered to place the, 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 the crossbar on the ground, and Jesus was quickly then thrown backwards, and then the process of attaching him was begun. And I thought at this point I'd stop because it gets, gets to be very, very graphic. You know, look at, it's interesting, if you look at verse 33, it says, and when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, was a place that looked like a skull, and there's been great debates, there's two locations that they think it possibly could be. They gave him wine to drink, and after tasting it, verse 34 says he was unwilling to drink it because he wanted to feel the full effects of the pain. Interesting. And when they had crucified him, they divided up the garments you would, think that, you would think that in all four Gospels there would be an elaboration on the details of the horrors of crucifixion. 
But it's amazing. Everyone just says, and he was crucified, he was crucified. He's like straight to the point. As the crucifixion progresses, as Jesus is on the cross, you know that basically he was supposed to die from suffocation. Every process of him trying to obtain a breath would have caused him more pain. <clears throat> it's been said that a person on the cross, on a cross being crucified, could last up to two weeks because it was slow most horrific type of execution that man has ever developed. They say that there's never been anything more horrendous that man has ever developed than this. And think about it. Jesus voluntarily, because he went there for us, is enduring this. I'm just going to read this excerpt because it summarizes all seven words. And I encourage you, they call it seven words, but it's seven expressions that Jesus uttered on the cross Think about these as Jesus is fighting for life, fighting to get breath while he's on the cross. This is called the last words. Spasmodically, he was able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in life-giving oxygen. It was undoubtedly during these periods that he uttered the seven short sentences that are recorded. The first, looking down at the Roman soldiers throwing dice for his seamless garment, he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. The second, to the penitent thief, today you shall be with me in paradise. The third, looking down at Mary, his mother, he said, woman, behold your son. Then turning to the terrified, grief-stricken adolescent John, the beloved apostle, he said, behold your mother. The fourth is from the beginning of Psalm 22 that we already read. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he suffered the hours of limitless pain. Remember, he's on the cross for a total of six hours. And it's believed that these last few statements are right at the end. Cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermediate partial asphyxiation, and searing pain as tissue was torn from his lacerated back from his movement up and down the rough timbers. Then another agony began, a deep crushing pain in the chest as the pericardium, the sac surrounding the heart, slowly filled with serum and began to compress the heart. The prophecy in Psalm twenty-two fourteen was fulfilled. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. The end was rapidly approaching. The loss of tissue fluids had reached a critical level. The compressed heart was struggling to pump heavy. Thick, sluggish blood to the tissues and tortured lungs were making a frantic effort to inhale small gulps of air. The markedly dehydrated tissues sent their flood of stimuli to the brain. Jesus grasped his fifth cry, I thirst. Again, we read in the prophetic psalm, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and you have brought me to the dust of the earth, Psalm 22, verse 15. A sponge soaked in the cheap sour wine that was the staple drink of the Roman legionnaires was lifted up to Jesus' lips. His body was now in extremis and he could feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues. This realization brought forth his sixth word, possibly little more than a tortured whisper, yet I think he said it loudly, it is finished. His mission of atonement had been completed. Finally, he could allow his body to die. With one last surge of strength, he once again pressed his torn feet against the nail, strengthened his legs to a a deeper breath, and uttered his seventh and last cry. 
Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The common method of ending a crucifixion was by, it's called cura fracture, the breaking of the bones of the leg. This prevented the victim from pushing himself upward and the tension could not be relieved from the muscles of the chest and rapid suffocation occurred. The legs of the two thieves were broken, but the soldiers approached Jesus. They saw that was unnecessary. Apparently, to make doubly sure of death, the legionnaire drove his lance between the ribs upward through the pericardium into the heart. John chapter 19, verse 34 states, and immediately there came out blood and water. Thus there was an escape of watery, watery fluid from the sack surrounding the heart and the blood of the interior of the heart of Jesus. This is rather conclusive post-mortem evidence that Jesus died not the usual crucifixion, death by suffocation, but of heart failure due to shock and constriction of the heart by fluid in the pericardium. Remember, behold the Lamb of God, one who's innocent. Psalm, I mean, second... 2 Corinthians, yes. 2 Corinthians, verse um, 21 says this. Let me get to the. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And I want us to think about that as we go through and we think about the reality that, that Jesus paid this for our sin. You know, I like to think, like, I like to sometimes think, you know, I have an enemy, and maybe tonight you can think of somebody that has caused you great pain and caused you great frustration, and you'd say, you know, even, I don't want, even though I don't want them to be my enemy, they are my enemy in life. And the Bible says, while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. And think about this. Would you die for the person you can figure in your mind, think in your mind right now, who is your enemy? We know a lot of times people today are thinking about, as we watch different people beheaded by Muslim terrorists across the world, and we think how evil these people are, yet Jesus died for them. Jesus paid the penalty for the whole world. Let's turn now as we prepare for communion, because 1 Corinthians chapter 11 tells us to reflect upon his death. That's what communion is. It's a memorial service. And in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 on, we get the instructions that we typically read at a communion service. The Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Proclaim his death. Proclaim all that he did, how he died. He was God come in the flesh. He paid it all. I take no credit. You take no credit. This is what we believe. Therefore, verse 27 says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Tonight, as we prepare for communion, I encourage you just to reflect upon what Jesus did. Tonight is a a heavy emphasis for us to remember what Jesus did for us. I love the line here, in remembrance of me, quoting Jesus. It's in remembrance of him. 
Now, again, as we tell people all the time, if, if you're visiting with us, communion, the two elements, are to be only practiced by believers. If you don't know if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't know if your children are believers, do not practice this. Do not let them practice it, I mean, as well. We remind you that the elements that we use, the bread, um, cracker, and juice, never turn into the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. These are just symbolic memorial remembrances. And so if the men will come forward now, as we partake of the first element, just remember that Jesus wants us to think of his body being crushed. I'm not going to try to elaborate it, but if you can reflect upon all that we thought through, through the trial, through the mocking, through the beatings. You see, in verse 24, it says, this is my body. Well, I'll pick up in verse 23. It says, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So let's give thanks, and then I'll have the men pass this out, and then you reflect upon it as... We remember Jesus. Dear God, we thank you so much for the bread you've given us in life, but the ultimate bread, Jesus Christ. We thank you that through the record of what we can see in Scripture and then what we understand beyond, that we do do see spiritually that there was a physical pain but a far greater spiritual pain separation we thank you that you gave your body to pay the penalty that we owed and i pray that as we reflect upon it there truly is all tonight a thankful heart for the body that was crushed for us amen